Well, I am really excited to share with you today um, just, honestly, God's story, okay? Because every story, your story, my story, this story, the story of Scarlet Hope, the story of Burlington Christian Church, every story is God's story. And it has to start with that first and foremost, or else we get it all wrong. Because if we think we're the story, and we're the center of the story, then we mess everything up. And we really don't help anybody. And so we want to start with God's story. So um, we have three goals today, and these were from last night and today. But one, the, the first goal is that we would begin to have ears that hear and eyes that see hurting people all around us. In this church, in these pews, in your homes, children, whomever these people may be, we need to have ears and eyes that see them. God created both of those things in Proverbs twenty twelve. The word says that. And the second goal is to how do we respond to hurting people? How do we respond when somebody says, my husband's abusing me, or I'm being sex trafficked, or I'm, uh, I just had an abortion, or I'm addicted to drugs? How do we respond to that? Our response as the church is very, very important because God has put the body of believers here to do just that, to bring healing and redemption to people's lives that have no idea or are trying to seek that in the world. We have the answer, and his name is Jesus. We are not the Savior. We know the Savior. Number three, our, our goal is what can you do? What can you do? And how can you respond? Having open hearts for what God is going to call us or you to do. So I'm going to tell you about my story. Um, and some of you may know it. I don't know. Some of you may have uh, heard it from my parents a million times. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think it, <laughs> they do a good job. They're ambassadors. Um, but uh, one of the things I want to start with, I don't normally start with this just because I go right into the Scarlet Hope is a very long story now. I've been at this since 2007, so I could keep you guys here literally all day um, with stories. But um, the reason why I even got on the trajectory of Scarlet Hope is really because I had parents that set an example my whole life of what it was like to love and welcome people that were hurting and broken and different than us. And that example, I hope and pray that you still see today in the church. I'm, I'm sure that you do. But um, just a quick, I don't know why the story always comes to my head. I don't even really remember the most of it. My, my dad probably could tell you. But there was a guy that my dad came to know named Alfred, and he was a homeless man. And sometimes when I think back about examples that my dad shared and, and brought alongside, Alfred actually had dinner at our house. He smelled really bad. I remember that as a little, I'm a little kid. He smelled pretty bad. Uh, we went to Six Flags. My dad took Alfred and um, I had to ride a roller coaster with Alfred and I <laughs> literally hate roller coasters still to this day, do not want to ride them. I hate that feeling in my stomach and my gut and my dad made me ride with Alfred and all I remember was bar like burrowing myself into Alfred's side <laughs> And he, like, protected me. That's all I know, because I was scared to death I was going to fall off this roller coaster. 
But that was the example that my parents had set my whole life. So maybe you have young kids in here today, and you're wondering, how do I set an example so that my child does great things in this world? I don't know. Maybe you're the one that's going to do great things in this world. Maybe you already are doing great things in this world. And, and God wants you to share that with other people to spark and, and motivate other people to do good things for his kingdom. So um, in, in 2007, well, it was a little bit before 2007. In 2006, my husband and I moved from Florida to, um, to New Albany, Indiana. Okay, people, this is not a fun place to live. It's really small, and like I didn't want to live there. I had been moving, I moved from Clearwater Beach to New Albany, Indiana. Okay, this is a very sad move. But uh, God obviously had a plan. He got a job at a church, and I started praying that the Lord would give me some way to use my life. So I had had this example all the way up until I moved out of the house. And I mean, I've had it my whole life, even still beyond, but I was out of the house now. So, you know, at, when you're getting to 18, 20, you're like, what is life all about? What's ha- what am I supposed to do with my life? Some 20-year-olds I've come to know actually just want to party and live their life for themselves. But, for, yeah, help us, Jesus. But the reality is I didn't, I wasn't asking those questions. I wasn't doing those. I was already married at 21, and I was asking God, okay, if I'm going to be here on this earth, what do you want me to do? And for two years from, it was about 2005 to 2007, I just, my husband and I would literally, we would pray together and we would fast and I would do crazy things thinking that this was going to lead me to the calling that God was going to call. And I had no idea what he was actually going to do. So an example of this is I, I would drive, uh, New Albany is right across a huge river, the Ohio River, and you drive right into Louisville, Kentucky, okay? It's five miles, it's like no big deal. Um, and I would drive across the bridge, and there was, at exit zero of Indiana, there was tons, hundreds of homeless people all around. So on my way into work every morning, or a lot of mornings, I would pick up a homeless person, and I would say, hey, do you want to go get McDonald's? Do you want to, what do you want to do? Let's just, you know, I'll take you to a shelter, whatever you need. Well, several times over and over, I would do this, and one of the women that I picked up, I never picked up a man, but I picked up a woman and this one particular day, and she jumped out of my car while I was on the bridge, and I would... I stopped and I asked her what she was doing and she she said she was seeing things and all this kind of stuff and I was like I have no idea how to respond to this right I didn't know what I didn't know I just wanted to be helpful I wanted to be useful but I didn't know what I didn't know so I literally was like okay that's probably not the calling for me I don't know but maybe I should just not do that right now so it was a little while later in May of 2007 and in when I would drive into work, every day that I drove into work, there was a triple, triple X theater. Um, and hopefully my talk doesn't make you uncomfortable, but if it does, maybe God is wanting to do something in your life. I don't know. But um, there was a triple X theater that I would drive by on my way into work. But I didn't know what this thing was. Most of the towns that my parents lived in were small towns. So they didn't have strip clubs and triple X theaters and, or that I knew of. And, um, and so I didn't know anything about this building. I drove by it, and I was praying on my way to work, and 
I heard the Lord as clear as day say to me, Rochelle, I am sending you two women in the sex industry to share my hope and my love. And I, I was like, this is it. This is exactly what I've been asking God to give me and praying about, but I don't, what is it? You know, what is this thing? My encouragement to you today is sometimes we, we hear from God and we hear God urging us to do small things, but we don't do it because we don't know what it is. And so the moment that God chose to impress upon my heart that he was going to send me to women in the sex industry, I called my husband and I literally, he knew that I was restless with like, God, I want, I need you to talk to me, call me, speak to me, something. Um, and he, I called him and I said, I believe God's calling me to women in the sex industry. Well, Yes, that, that was a very funny day because he obviously also didn't know what was going to happen. But the words out of his mouth, I'll never forget because my husband's a pretty, like, reserved guy. And he said, that's exactly what Jesus would do. And I was like, okay, now we're on to something. <laughs> so I started researching all about the sex industry. What is it? What, where are these people? Like, who are these people? Who, who are they? I started realizing that they're people like you and like me. They're people in upper class, middle class, lower class families. They're people in the south end of Louisville, in the west end of Louisville, in the east end of Louisville. But then I started calling churches, and I started saying, do you have a ministry to prostitutes? And they unanimously across our city would say, no. Click. And I, I was like, okay, now what? Now what do I do? And um, one of the things about Louisville, Kentucky, which is very, very interesting, is that we are in the heart of the Bible Belt. The largest Christian churches are in Louisville, Kentucky. Why was no one ministering or going to these people? Trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking, domestic labor, all of that was not a talked about subject. It is now, but it wasn't 13, 12 years ago. So I didn't even know, I wasn't asking the words about trafficking. I was, I was just saying, do you minister to prostitutes or women in strip clubs or women in massage parlors? And unanimously, nobody was doing anything. I got a hold of a, of a pastor at a church. He told me, oh, we're doing something all right. We're raising money, about $10 million, and we're going to shut all the clubs down. I thought, oh, well, what about the people? What are we going to do about the people? Well, it doesn't matter. The people are the problem. Okay, so you're going to try to raise $10 million and shut these places down. Well, I'm going to go to the people. I think that's what God's calling me to do. And I remember in the beginning, I had multiple meetings of people, Christian church leaders trying to raise $10 million, and I'm over here serving strip club meals, mad at me, because they thought I was doing, just, I was working completely against them. In 2008, so a year after I'd done all my research, still didn't have the answers of what I was supposed to do, I was in a training in Lexington, and I heard God say this, and I've always thought that this was a point that I constantly need to share with people. He said, stop praying, 
stop researching. I'm not giving you all of the answers. Go. That's what I'm asking you to do, is to go. So that was on a Sunday. I told my best friend Sarah and two other women, Carrie and Heather, and I said, we're going to pray and fast. Would you pray and fast with me from Sunday to Tuesday for God to give us the exact strip club that you, he wanted us to go to? There were 27 strip clubs in Louisville, Kentucky. We were the f fifth largest exploitation, trafficking, and sex industry in America. That's a huge, huge, huge number. We're almost as large as Las Vegas in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and so, and everybody thinks all that stuff happens somewhere else. Every city, I've always heard it. They say, oh, that doesn't happen in our city. It does. North Carolina actually claims to be the eighth largest trafficking state in the entire United States. Eighth is pretty low on that list. So when he's, so we started praying, fasting from Sunday to Tuesday. Tuesday we met up at five o'clock. Our husbands came with us and all, all four of us unanimously felt there was one particular club God was calling us to. So we went, we drove down to that club. It was about, all together, it was about eight o'clock at night. I had never been into a strip club, but I got to tell you, I was not scared. I was excited. I was excited because I knew God was going to show up, and I knew he was calling us to do this. So we walked in the door. We paid $10 to get in the door, and we walked up to the bar tender, and we sat down at the bar, and the funny part about the story is I was 23 at the time, and I had, I had like, I knew what people go to strip clubs to do. So I was like, I'm going to wear a turtleneck, no makeup, hair pulled back. I did not want to look like I was there for a job or I didn't want to, like, you know, have any man lust after me or anything. So we all did this. So we looked kind of odd and out of place when we show up at this place. We sit at the bar. I order a Sprite. My friend orders a Dr. Pepper or whatever. And I'm like, the bartender looked at us and she said, why are you guys here? And I said, honestly, people, I had no words. It's not like God gave me a step-by-step -step play. He said, I just want you to go. Then he's going to give me the, you know, the, the next step. But I didn't know if he was going to give me the next step, but he did. And so when she said that, the only words that could come out of my mouth were this. Jesus has sent me here to do something kind and loving for the women in this place. Can I bring a home-cooked meal in? I had no idea where that came from, but the Lord. She looked at me, laughed, and said, probably not here. I thought, well, I'm a very stubborn person, thanks, Dad. And I thought, I'm not going to leave here just yet. So I got to talk to her, and I talked to her. How are you? How long have you been here? You have a boyfriend? I got to know her life. Her life was very sad. But I, I was encouraging to her, and so about... I don't know, 10, 15 minutes later, we went over to another part of the bar, and this was the bigger, more loud part of the bar. There was about 50 men that we can remember in the bar, and my friend Sarah was talking to me, and I just felt the Holy Spirit say, Rochelle, go over and talk to this man. It could have been any man. It could have been a customer. It could have been a bouncer. It could have been any man, and God led me to the owner of the club. And I walked up to him and I said, my name is Rochelle. I'm not here for a job. I'm here because Jesus sent me here to do something kind and loving for the women in this club. Can I bring a home-cooked meal in? And he said, his jaw, he, he looked at me 
and he, he said, is there a catch? And I said, there's no catch. Because at that moment, I didn't have a catch. And what I also didn't know is that people in this industry that have a drug addiction and have a relationship issues and were abused as a, a child and have domestic violence, trust no one. Trust no one. And so I had to earn his trust, but I didn't know that. God was leading me down that path. So I said, honestly, I have no catch. I just want to serve a meal, and I want to get to know the women in here. He said, when can you come in? I said, how about Thursday? That was in 2008, and we have been serving in strip clubs every single Thursday night at 9.30 p.m. till 1 o'clock in the morning since 2008. We've served thousands and thousands, about, about 12 to 15,000 meals a year to women and men and families now all over our city. Our city has grown or decreased in the sex industry in certain ways and has grown in other ways. We have, instead of 27 strip clubs, we have 19 strip clubs now, and that's because of the decrease of women. But the online side of things have, have increased. In 2007, the iPhone did not exist. And that's part of why people in cities, when I go to different cities and do trainings, they don't believe the problem exists because they don't necessarily see it in strip clubs anymore and in other places. It's all online. And so when we started recognizing that the, the, the pattern of the industry was going to an online, um, that's where women were going, we started asking the Lord, how are we going to get to them? And um, this year we launched an outreach program to women that are online. It's called our, it's, we call it our text outreach. We text nearly 8,000 numbers in a given month um, with a 35% response rate of women coming to us saying, I need help. I need help. And we're one organization in Louisville, Kentucky doing this. There is, the need is huge. Huge. I can guarantee if I was here in Burlington or Raleigh or Graham or North, wherever you live here, there would be the same problem. Because the problem is not that there are buildings that these people congregate at. The problem is that our hearts are hard and are sinful. And what people need to understand is that there is a Savior who came to, re to free them from that that they can be freed and forgiven for their sins, that they can be freed and forgiven and healed from all the sin done against them. Many people in this industry have been sexually abused as a child. Every single person that has ever come through our ministry has had sexual abuse under the age of 18. And we ask ourselves, when I meet a 30 or 40, 50-year-old in the strip club, why, how could she be here? Well, the reason why is because things before she was even developed, right? Your, the front part of your brain doesn't even develop until you're after 21. So before she's even developed, all of that stuff started becoming distorted and, and twisted. And the enemy begins telling you, this is all you're worth. Now you have something, you get older. Now you have something you can either get back at people with. Or this is truly all you're worth. And so we meet these women, and we meet the women and the children and the families, and we're telling them a different story. Sometimes it's sweet to their ears, sometimes it's not. 
Sometimes it's very painful. Walking through your own story, understanding your own pain and suffering as well as suffering and pain done to you is very painful and is very hard. And that's one of the things I wanted to reiterate today is that when somebody comes to you or when somebody walks in your door or comes to the church and says, I've been abused or I'm, be I'm being abused or I was the abuser, first of all, it takes courage to even admit that. And so we have to have tender ears and, a, and we have to be slow to speak first. We must understand. And let me tell you, we don't understand. If a woman has been raped and you have been raped, you don't have the same pain. You don't know exactly what they've been through. And that's the one misconception about, about people in, all over the place. It doesn't have to be just the church. They say, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. No, we don't. You weren't there. I wasn't there. So understanding, being slow to speak and quick to listen is very, very, very important with people that are hurting. One of the things, you can't really see this, but uh, can you go to the who we are slide? I just want to reiterate something. So um, the, the one thing that I wanted to just point out about our, our mission statement is Scarlet Hope exists to share the hope and love of Jesus Christ with women in the, in the adult entertainment industry. That's simple. That's our mission. That is our mission. And so if you are here today, I even encourage people, what is your mission? What is your mission? Make Jesus Christ known. How can you do that in every single way, in every single relationship? One of the things in our vision statement is saying yes to all that God asks us to do, reaching people for his glory, which comes from Luke 9.23. We know we are called to simply love God and our neighbors, Mark 12.30 while we see the Spirit transform their lives. One, one thing that I've learned across the years is that the, the reason a lot of times why p broken people are afraid or hurting people are afraid to come forward is because they're going to be more hurt by the person that they're telling what they're telling to. And sometimes for us, that can be really intimidating because we can say, well, then what do we do? What do we do? And I, we stress at Scarlet Hope, one quick thing is safe people. Are you a safe person? And do you have safe people to go to? What does it look like to be a safe person? What does it look like for this place to be a safe church? One of the, one of the things that we talk about often is we don't fix all their problems. A lot of times that whenever somebody comes to us and they say, I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that. Oh, but by the way, my boyfriend last night just gave me a black eye. We all, all the time, most of us want to say, we want to focus on the black eye. But here's the problem. People are the experts of their own lives. Okay? If I tell you, if you come to me and you say, oh, I need transportation, but my boyfriend hit me last night, but I'm asking for transportation, I only focus on the black eye, I will not be helping you in the best way possible. Because the best way possible is what that person wants or needs. You and I may see the bigger picture of something, but that's not going to ultimately earn trust 
and allow that person to be in charge of their own life. Does that make sense? Did I say that correctly? The, there's a saying that, I, I mean, I don't know, the Lord gave it to me, but the lost do not need to be rehabilitated. The, they, the lost need to be resurrected. And so the next thing that I want to go through is that, and I don't have it in here, but um, I'm sure you all at some point in your life studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Okay. Very, if you, if you didn't write it down and go look it up. But it's not the gospel, it's not the Bible, but it's a simple example of how humans, what we need. The basic needs are, can anybody tell me? What are your basic needs in life? Food, water, shelter, clothing. And the next is safety, okay, and, and so on and so forth. But before, I want to focus on this first thing, before you can move to uh, the top level is what, they, what Maslow calls self-actualization. Did you go over this? Okay. Self-actualization, which means you actually realize what you, who you are, your identity, and you can love yourself and all those types of things. Before you can ever even get there, you have to have the basic needs met. So as a church, as a people, as a person, as an organization, are we meeting the basic needs first? I don't know. That's, I was talking to my dad last night. I said, what organizations does Burlington partner with in the community to help provide those things? Because the church can't be all things to all people. I, Scarlet Hope is a parachurch organization. We are a bridge to the local church. But if, if my church, at, which is Sojourn Community Church, if Sojourn Community Church thinks that they're going to take on a ministry to thousands of women a year, they would lose sight of what their purpose is. So my job is, I have this mission over here, we deliver them to the church, Lord willing, and the church, we have taught, trained, and equipped several people in the church to come around them and help people like that. And that's another thing that I'm really passionate about, is that when that woman walks in that door, or that man walks in that door, or that child walks in that door, that they feel welcomed, that they feel accepted just as they are. Not because they got cleaned up and they came to church in their Sunday best, but because they are accepted, you are accepted just the way that you are. A woman um, that I knew many years ago, her name was Alabama, and she was um, much older than I was. Um, sorry, I need a drink. <laughs> Um, so she was much older than I was, had a couple of kids that were older, was dating the bouncer of a club. She was a dancer at the club, had been there many, many, many years. And I uh, had befriended her in the club, and about a year after her and I became friends, we would have coffee or lunch outside of the club, um, I asked her if she wanted to go to church with me. No, saying, do you want to go to church, wasn't the first thing that I asked her. Could Alabama have died between the time I asked her? Sure, yeah, absolutely. However, I knew that she had had sexual abuse inside the church, and me asking her to come to church with me was going to take time. So I didn't ask her right away. About a year in, I, I said, would you like to come to my church? Well, 
I made the mistake of thinking that my church at the time, I don't go to the same church, was safe. And when I went to go pick her up, it took every ounce of her being to show up that day to go to church. I mean, I remember her calling me multiple times, just saying, what do I wear? You know, and I would say, wear whatever you want. It does, that's not what church is about. Wear whatever you want. Understanding that I could pick her up and she could be inappropriately dressed. And guess what? That's what she was. So I go to pick her up, and she is in, I'm not even going to describe her outfit. I knew it was inappropriate, but I didn't care. I was like, we're going to church. That's what we're doing today. That's it. My church actually had about 10,000 people in it. So I thought, I mean, I am not going to tell. I just kept over in my head, I am not telling this woman she has to change her clothes. Not going to do it. This is where she's at. This is, who, this is what she thinks is appropriate. This is what we're doing. So we go to church. We go. We sit. She cries the whole service. God really moved on her heart. And an elder after church came up to me and said, Now, I heard what you're doing with prostitutes and all that, but if you're going to bring her again, you will not be bringing her dressed like that. And... Well, I had se- my husband was on staff, so I had several meetings after that with lots of different people trying to explain to them that this woman had never set foot in a church since her abuse as a little child. Did she hear him say No, she did not. And so, um, I, but here's the thing. She actually she did not hear him say that, but she felt it. People looking at her, staring at her. Nobody came up and said, hey, I'm so glad you're here. I had to constantly overcompensate for all of my Christian friends that were not welcoming. It was heartbreaking. Needless to say, my husband left staff six months from that point. I, I quit going to that church right then and there, and I started going to the church that I'm still a part of today. That was nine and a half years ago. I, you know... Whether I made the right decision or not, I tried to help people in the church to understand this is where they're at. And God doesn't say, clean up and put on your Sunday best to come into my house. He doesn't say that. And so that's the type of the churches that are around here have got to understand that. The church is for the broken, it is not for the well. So, um, needless to say, and I, I always, I have many, many victorious stories in Scarlet Hope, but sadly, um, I have a lot of not good stories, and her story didn't end good. She was actually killed by her boyfriend, um, and uh, he was put in prison, and that was the last, I mean, I, I'm, that was it. It was done. And so, um, but God... The, the thing that I want to just stress is that we do not understand people's stories. And we have got to be a whole lot less judgmental. And start opening up our hearts and opening up our minds to allowing the Lord and the Holy Spirit to work through us, in us, and through our churches so that we can welcome people that are hurting and that do not know Jesus. I would hate 
to be the very person that caused someone to not know Jesus because I judged them by what they were wearing. I do not want to be responsible like that on Judgment Day. So let's move on a little bit. Like I, I did tell you guys I could talk a long time. Um, so uh, one of the quick verses that I just, God has always drawn me to, hold on one second, um, is Isaiah 61. And many of you probably know this verse, but um, this verse is something that I believe is for each Christian. And it's an, it's, it's, it's about Jesus, but it's a reflection, I think, of us. And it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness and a planting of the Lord for the day of his splendor. I think about my time that has been at Scarlet Hope so far, and oftentimes my husband will say now, because he knows all the My husband gets it all, like the good stories and the bad stories, and so he's seen it all this whole time. And sadly, no one, besides my family, uh, is still with me along this journey. We've seen people come and go, and that's part of being in ministry. That's part of being um, working with people in this population is that people are quick to give up on people. When they don't do, or when someone doesn't do what you want them to do, it's easy to walk away. It is very hard to stay the course. And some of the women that I work with, and, the, and even the men that we work with now, we say, I'll give you this example. Two weeks ago, or I've been gone for three weeks. Three weeks ago, I had a woman who I've been working with for three years. She got pregnant. By, she is 22 years old. She got pregnant by a 55-year-old man who was her drug dealer. And um, he told her, you are not having this baby. You are, giving, you are having an abortion. She came to me in the middle of the club and told me that he wanted to pay for her to have an abortion. And, of course, I am completely against abortion. Completely. I sat there with her, and I was as she's crying to me that she doesn't want to have the baby because she doesn't want to be connected to this abuser. But she doesn't know what else to do because he's saying he'll kill her if she doesn't have the abortion. And I said, well, what about adoption? Let's talk about adoption. He said he would not have any of it. So in the middle of this, okay, I'm I'm like... God, all I could say is, like, God, like, I don't know what to do, right? I want to say, like, if you do this, I'm not going to have a relationship with you, right? I could have said that. It would have been easy to walk away from her because it was painful for me to understand and to even comprehend. However, I sat there and I told her the gospel. I told her exactly what Jesus did for her and exactly how she can be free. 
And despite what she may do the next morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, which was at that time it was only seven hours away, that I would still love her no matter what. Whether you agree with that statement or not, I don't really care. The next morning, she went and had an abortion. I did not know that she did that until two days later. Two days later, I had every prayer person praying around the clock that morning at 8 o'clock. She called me two days later, and she said, she didn't say anything, actually. I said, you did it, didn't you? And she said, yes. I said, why are you calling me? She said, because you love me. And I said, I do. And she just wept and wept and wept because she didn't know where else to turn. But praise be to God that she didn't, that second, turn to drugs or back to the abuser. She turned to us. And I was able to talk to her and pray with her and counsel her about what the Lord wants to do so desperately in her life. And even though she's done this, she, yes, we talked about forgiveness and repentance and asking for forgiveness. But she's not in that place yet. It would be very easy as a Christian to walk away from someone like that. But I have every hope in the world that she will come to know Jesus Christ. She was raised Muslim, has no other, she has no, no concept of God, our God. There's no concept of Jesus. So I'm holding out hope that she comes to know Christ. So um, our, our ministry has really just kind of taken off. If you'll go to the timeline slide, uh, it's on page, page 8. Um, just really kind of taken off um, over, and this is just a brief cap, and the video really showed it, but um, the church that I was at had said to me, can you guys see that? I don't know. It's really hard to see. <laughs> it's really hard to see. Um, but, okay. Had said to me that, um, you know, we don't want this a program. This was the church that I was telling you about. Um, and it said, we don't want this as a program in our church, and so um, you're going to need to start your own 501c3. Praise be to God I did that because God has just taken it and done really cool stuff with it. Um, he gave us in 2011. Um, my husband, before 2011, had taken in a mom and her three kids that we found in a strip club parking lot. She was dancing while the kids were sleeping in the van because they were homeless. And so... Um, my team called me and said, there is a mom and her three kids and we can't get them in a shelter. Tonight, would you take them home? Well, she ended up staying in our house for three months. And, um, and during that time, we were like, all right, Lord, if homelessness is a part of the problem, then we need to figure out how we can solve this. So at the time, I had thought, let's get a house. And so I'm just going to Briefly run through this, we had did our first annual gala and we needed to raise $75,000 to buy this very dilapidated house in the south of Louisville. And um, we raised the money and then the lady who owned the house would not sell us the house. And I was devastated and it was only 900 square feet large. And I was thinking, this thing is a piece of junk. To this day, God's justice is great. It's still a piece of junk and still sitting there. Um, and she hasn't sold it. And so, but two months later, God gave us a 12,000 square foot home in the beautiful heart of Louisville on the East End. And it's a historic home. I don't think I have any pictures of it. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't think so. But oh, in the little, see that big house? Twelve thousand square feet. Um, we housed ten women out of trafficking and exploitation there. The year that we got it open. During that year, though, we were helping um, our numbers were about three hundred and eighty a month. And so 10 beds seemed very silly when there was 380 people. So we decided, okay, what are these people asking for? So that's another thing that I want to point on is that when somebody comes to you in hurt or need, what do they need? What do they need? Okay. And asking, what do you need? And so we started, I started surveying a lot of the women and they said, I just want a job. I could pay for my own house if you would help me get a job. I can't live on $9 an hour or $8 an hour. Our minimum wage at the time was $7.50. I can't live on that with three kids. So how can I get a job? So in 2014, all of our residents graduated the program at, at the time, and um, we shut the housing program down and opened up Scarlet's Bakery. And so Scarlett's Bakery, yep, you can see it up at the top left here. Um, and it has been able to employ women coming out of exploitation and sex trafficking. So my mom, who you all have gotten to, I'm sure, eat her baked goods, baked my whole life. Her maiden name is Baker. I just would assume that's why. But... Um, uh, taught me how to bake. So I like started making wedding cakes. I don't know when, like, I don't, I don't know when I started doing it as a hobby, but one of the things was like, how can I teach someone what I know? And I only knew at the time I had, I hadn't gone to school for culinary, but I was like, I know how to bake. People hire me to bake. So I'll teach them how to bake. Um, it's something really cool though. I don't think it's on this timeline. In 2002, it was before I married my husband. I was already dating him, though. His dad had us write on a piece of paper. Uh, our, it was at Thanksgiving. Dreams, thorns, and challenges. And on my dreams in 2002, I wrote, have a bakery for women. But I didn't know. God, I mean, I didn't, God didn't call me until 2007. And so I had no idea what that was going to be like. So um, one quick note on that, never give up on your dreams. Um, so we have, a, we have three bakeries now. We have a, uh, the one that you saw the picture of was our first one. That's our kitchen. And then we have other retail stores around Louisville, Kentucky. And um, we're selling our products uh, to just keep employing women. Um, exploitation and trafficking um, are forever rampant in our city, and so we will always have a waiting list. We only employ 20 women at a time um, because we provide a higher salary for them, a higher wage for them, and all the benefits so we can properly care for them. So we have to, you know, um, we can only take 20 at a time. Now, if the Lord wants to drop a couple million dollars in my bucket, then that would be lovely. But um, until then, 20 at a time. So Kaylee, uh, you guys, some of you were, that were here last night heard her talk. She came on board three years ago, took my idea to have a career development program alongside the bakery. 
Um, and she and I and a bunch of other people started developing what is now today the career development program. And so a really cool story, and you're going to see her testimony here in a little bit, um, is uh, one of our first ladies, it, it doesn't tell this in the video, one of our very first employees, she um, was in, we met her in the clubs, she ended up going to prison because she was dealing drugs in the clubs, went to prison for four and a half years, and our team wrote her regularly. We were the only people that ever wrote her in the prison. Her own mom didn't even visit her in prison. So when she came out, the day she came out, she came to our door. And as soon as she came to our door, we had this program open. And she said, I need a job. I said, here's the application, fill it out, let's go. And she became a manager in our store. She just got a two-year full-ride scholarship to go to culinary arts school. Um, and she started March 22nd. That was her first day of school. Um, she wants to own her own restaurant so she can hire women out of prison. Um, it is just, she became a Christian um, in prison, um, but she said part of what even led her to be open was she said, I knew that there were good Christian people in this world. And she said it was only through Scarlet Hope that I saw that. Um, and so the Lord used prison to draw her to him, and, and it was beautiful. She said she wouldn't regret one day in prison, and so that's why she wants to have a restaurant that um, would employ them. So you're going to see more of her testimony here in a minute. Um, Mom, I know I don't have that much time because I'm going to have Sarah. Sarah's going to speak, right? Okay. All right. So really quickly, ah! um, really quickly, I just want to give you guys a little bit of, you know, what trafficking, I say exploitation and trafficking because trafficking is very hard to define. Um, and it takes, in our organization, it takes us roughly two years to define domestic trafficking. The reason why is because most women come to us and they say they're with their boyfriend. Okay, well, who am I to question? Their boyfriend. I'm not going to start interrogating her and saying, well, do you give him all your money? Does he make you do this? Does he make you do that? It's not until I, I, I've gained her trust, and I don't do that manipulatively. I just do it as a friend, like I would you, um, that eventually it starts coming out, well, Bobby took my money tonight so I can't go meet you for coffee because I don't have any money. Well, why did Bobby take your money? And then it starts going down this trail. And so it roughly takes two to two and a half years to identify a domestic trafficking woman in our city. Um, we work with the FBI in Louisville, and that's another thing that... Um, that's another thing that we've been building on is um, how can we... The FBI, our trafficking units, they cannot possibly help everyone. First of all, the FBI can't provide any resources. They can connect her to me, but they can't provide any resources. So they just agreed, uh, actually three weeks ago before I left, they agreed to have comfort bags. Um, so we have a bag with underwear and like toiletries and all that, which is a great thing for a church to do, and say, if you have a trafficking victim or if you have a prostitute or if you have somebody that meets these, um, this criteria, please give them this bag. And inside the bag is a book and our information and all of that stuff. 
And so we had two victims of trafficking that we worked with last week. Our team did. I wasn't there. But our team went and met with those victims of trafficking from the FBI just off of those comfort bags. So we've been able to help um, in that way as well. But uh, trafficking in your area could look like a variety of things. Massage parlors, um, I call them illegal massage parlors because whether or not they have a business license, it doesn't really matter. The activity in the building is more than likely illegal. And so, but you're not going to march in there and say, you're an illegal massage parlor. And so, you know what, come out. So we do the exact same thing every single time that we go to our massage parlors. We have 25 massage parlors in Louisville. We deliver gifts with our number and our contact to the massage parlors once a month. They've come to know us. Um, out of the 25, 20 of them are Asian-speaking massage parlors. We are not Asian not Asian. Um, so I have to get translators. And so we translate all the material into multiple languages in case they, you know, they don't speak just Chinese or Korean or whatever. And so um, we've been doing that. So that is, uh, that's really our outreach program. Engage, empower, equip. I don't know if it's up there, but engage, empower, equip. That's what we do. Go therefore and make all disciples of all nations. All nations. My little nation that God sent me to is the sex industry. Empower them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. You and I, if, if you are in Christ, you know that we do not have power within ourselves. And so we want them to have the unleashing power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in them. That's something that only the Lord can do. But we help, this is how I say it, we help soften and prepare their hearts. Break down walls so that God can continue to pursue their heart. Equip, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God is with us. People say to me all the time, and we're going to have a Q&A at brunch, right? Yeah, a Q&A at brunch, and... Um, so you can ask whatever kinds of questions, but people um, say to me all the time, well, isn't this dangerous? I'm like, well, I'm still standing here and 13 years later. So, I mean, have I been in harm's way? Yes. I remember an instance where um, mom and dad aren't going to like this story, but it happened, and so this is that. Um, I was in a club, and Joshua, my husband, we used to have security outside of the clubs. So my husband and my friend's husband would sit outside of the clubs and they would stay out there until we were done. And then, but if anything happened, they would, you know, they would, uh, or we could call them and they could, I don't do what, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but I was like, just call 911. Like, <laughs> um, but they would sit out there. And so, um, I was in the club, and my husband and this guy named Jason had witnessed an altercation outside of the club with somebody, and the altercation came into the club, and then they fired gunshots at each other, but while I, myself, and my friend Carrie were in the dressing room of this strip club, and all we heard, we didn't know what was happening, all we heard was gunshots. So my, I look at my phone immediately, and my husband's texting me, get in, the, get in a closed space and sit down and don't move and like that's all I I'm like okay what's happening so of course 911 is already being called by tons of other people and so her and I sit there and we were we were holding hands and um I mean I'm smiling about this because I'm crazy but I was like sitting there and I was like Carrie 
this is what it would mean to die for the Lord. I'm like, this is not. Uh, she's like, I don't want to die. I have little kids. And I didn't have any kids at the time. And she's like, I don't want to die. I'm like, I know, but, you know, at the moment, that was, at the moment, that's what I thought. I don't know. But I just think, like, that is what it takes for the gospel. And no, 99.9% of us will not be in a situation like that. However, what are you willing to risk? Are you willing to risk your reputation? Are you willing to risk a friendship to tell somebody about the gospel, about Jesus? Are you willing to sit with somebody who had an abortion that nobody else wants to sit with? What are you willing to risk? And that's something that you can ask yourself from today and, and forever, hopefully. I, we, launch, we are launching in June 1st. We're launching something called the I See Her campaign. And this really launched out of we're doing a huge fundraising campaign right now because um, we just need to hire more girls. Our waiting list is super long, and the needs of the girls are really large. And we're trying to help with childcare now. That was something we weren't able to incorporate. But what we realized were while the women are in our program, their children are in unsafe childcare, and we cannot be okay with that. So we need to help the children. So all this stuff is going on. So we're in this huge campaign. But this came up because um, we do something called street outreach. And um, every time that we go on street outreach, this is what we do. We have this big bus that was donated, and we pile in the bus. There's always two men and about seven women. We pile in the bus, and we go out to the streets in Louisville to some of the worst areas, and we take a big, huge bucket of roses. Um, you kind of saw that actually in the video. Um, you saw me passing out a rose. And um, we go up to women. We like driving down the road, and I'll see a woman that I think, First of all, I stop at almost every woman, but I don't want to be offensive either, and you know, because our stuff says if you've been exploited or whatever, and we're here to help. Um, and so we, this one particular day, we drove up and um, to this woman who was uh, getting out of a car. Who it was a it, the guy the car was very nice and it was a businessman. I could tell he had a suit on. But she jumps out of the car at the corner and just immediately shoots down the street. And so our bus was right behind this car, and he pulls off to the left. And um, I was like, without a single second, I jump out of the car. I said, give me a rose, give me a bag, and we're going towards this lady. So we start walking down the, ro the, the um, road, and it's on a really busy road. It's like the notorious road in Louisville that has all the crime. It's called 7th Street. And we're on 7th Street, and I'm, I'm literally, like, she's walking ahead. And I'm, like, running, walking, because I don't want to scare her. And so as soon as she would be, like, kind of turn around, I'd be, like, turn, I'd stop. And I'd say, miss, miss. And I had a rose in my hand in the bag, and my friend Carrie was with me. I have a lot of Carries in my life, I just realized. And this was a different Carrie. And so I'm walking in with the rose, and um, I'm, like, miss, miss. And so we run up to her. And as soon as we get to her, I realized she had headphones in. And so I said, Miss! And she turns around, and she, um, she is sweating, like profusely sweating. This was last July. And I, I said, she takes out her earphones, and I gave her the rose, and I said, I saw you. The second I said, I saw you, she immediately started crying. 
And I said, and God sees you. And she was like, I just, she said, I just turned a trick and sold myself. God doesn't, he, he hates me. He I mean, she went on this whole long, long, long tangent about how she was unworthy. And in that moment, I was able to share Christ's love with her in the gospel. And I was jumping up and down. I didn't even know I was jumping up and down. I was so excited that I was getting to see her and meet her. And the car, the van, saw, took a video of me jumping up and down because I was so excited. And she said, I said, can I pray with you? And she said, my pimp, I, I was like had my back. There was a car coming up this way, so I couldn't see a black car. She said, my pimp's right there. And I said, okay, I don't want to get you in trouble. And, um, and she, said, she said, this means more than anything. I said, can I hug you? And she said, you don't want to touch me. And I said, yes, I do. And I, and I grabbed her and I hugged her for like what seemed like forever. And her pimp pulled up right beside us and he said, let's go. And she had to get in the car and leave. About a week later, she... Um, was found uh, dead on the side of 7th Street that, that next week. The police actually asked me to identify her face because she didn't, she, they couldn't find anyone to identify her. And I remember God saying, you saw her and I saw her. And so we're launching this I See Her campaign because there are women, men, children, everybody hurting. That they don't think that they're seen by God, let alone you or me. And so um, I challenge you all, before we watch Robin's video, I challenge you to see her. And when you see her, you respond. So watch this video. This is of a woman that... God has redeemed. With my grandma and playing Nintendo with my brother and uh, going to church with my granny was, and then having Sunday dinner was the happiest times when, when I was little. And then things changed. My mother came and uprooted us and took us to Florida. And um, that's where the nightmares began, you know. Uh, while I was in Florida, my stepdad was very physically abusive. Um, our neighbor, who was our babysitter, he was very sexually abusive. He uh, abused me for two years, made me feel dirty, made me scared, said he was going to hurt my family, hurt my little sister if I told anybody. So I just kept that to myself for a really long time. After three years, we went ahead and uh, came on back to Louisville. My dad, my biological father, decided that he wanted to start seeing me on the weekends. And uh, when he did, he, he noticed that I had bruises and, and burns. Um, so he took us away. He went to CPS and had CPS take us away. When I was 10, when I was living with my dad, um, I really thought things were gonna be better. But then a whole different kind of sexual abuse happened. And it happened for three years that way with him and him and my stepmom. Um, a whole new terror. Initially, 
I started hanging out with the older crowd. Um, started smoking pot and uh, drinking. That's where I was introduced to the numbness. Unfortunately, I was a wild child at that time, so I was ribbing and running, and, and uh, I started working at Save Lot, and I met um, Chris, my uh, future husband. Eventually, me and Chris, we got married. We had our first child, and um, everything was good. I thought everything was going to be so great. With our second child, I ended up running away. I couldn't take, and that's all I know, is running. And I ended up going to the clubs to make money because I wanted to be able to take care of them the best I could on my own. And uh, that led me to uh, to jail time. You know, I, I uh, got involved with the wrong guy and I just knew that it was time for change. While I was in jail, I was reintroduced to Scarlet Hope. I had known them because they would come into the clubs and bring food and talk to us about God. But when you're doing the things that you're doing, you know, you just, you really don't feel comfortable. So you, so I used to run from them. But with them sending me letters while I was in and cards, you know, telling me how much, you know, they want me to be a part of their organization, that they love me and all this, it helped my uh, emotions and my change. Like God sent them there just at the right time of my life that they could, um, when I get out, they could help me grow like they have. The career development program has helped me build skills to become the person that I am today to help me get the scholarship that's coming from me being a manager at the bakery. I love to cook so much and I love watching people enjoy my food. So I figured I'm gonna open my own restaurant and I'm gonna, you know, help uh, people that come from troubled backgrounds to get their life back in order. You know, God says you have to give it away to keep it. It's because of God that I was introduced to Scarlet Hope that I ended up being, being able to be a mother to my children, um, that me and Chris are back together doing so well, that I'm about to start school at Solomon because I got a scholarship that Scarlet Hope helped me get and it wouldn't be possible without the donors who generously give their money to help us. You know, the volunteers that give their time freely to love on us and just help us get our lives back in order. We owe a lot of thanks to you guys, but most importantly, it's big thanks to God for just loving on us and loving me enough to help me change. Thank you, God.